You are listening to the Bristow Advent Christian Church Podcast. Visit us on the web at bristowacc.net. Thank you for listening. Yeah, this is, uh, this is home for me. For those who don't know, I see a lot of friendly and warm faces in here, a lot of family. So I, I grew up in this church. Uh, this is a little bit of a homecoming. Uh, I was retired out of the Army, what, well, care about three years ago this, this summer, so... Uh, I haven't really done much in, as it pertains to ministry since, but uh, whenever I, I heard about the circumstances of the church, talked with Jerry, and we talked about you know taking on some speaking roles for you in, in, here in an interim capacity, and then uh, maybe on a guest status moving forward. But I uh, grew up south of town here, um, went, to, uh, went to university in NSU, I got my seminary degree from Oklahoma Christian, so some of this is... Uh, all my sermons kind of get a little technical, and they kind of read like essays, but that's what I've been trained to do, and that's what you got. So um, today, so the title of my sermon is actually lifted from the Declaration of Independence. So the first lines of the Declaration of Independence is, are really cool. We know these truths we hold to be self-evident, that man is an uh, inalienable rights. I guess I don't know it as well as I thought, but uh, life, liberty, pursuit, happiness. We, we hear that pretty often, but read the transcript, you go into here and there's a beautiful line that says the permanent structures of government should not be changed for light and variable causes, light and variant causes, wait a minute, light and transient causes. And I feel like that phrase, light and transient causes, speaks to the circumstances of government today. I'm going to talk about that with you in the content of the sermon. So I suppose probably the quality most desired 4th of July 4th sermon is that it's brief, I can at least give you that. Carrie usually gives me the signal if I, I talk too long, but every preacher in the country, in my opinion, would do well this morning not to delay celebration or linger upon the tributes commonly afforded to the anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, the meaning and significance of which has been long established in the American tradition. I would even offer that the impressions brought about by this holiday, those of bright sounds, full colors, and the taste of the American summer, they're all very good things. And I think those good things offer their own sermons. And I'm sure for the expectations in the room, those expectations are to feel these oppressions anew in 2021. Perhaps there's no greater expression of freedom in 2021 than, you know, I see, I see bare faces. The mask has been removed. So that's a very good thing. And you, you should celebrate as a patriot should. That's a, that's a very good thing. And marshalling the patriot's response to this holiday is well tried even in the church. And so still the Christian response but there is yet to speak on this holiday, which here falls on Communion Sunday in a manner that is characteristic of the Advent Christian. I take to this task today. And I'll start by giving you three observations. The first of these observations is this. The Advent Christian Church is not a moral community, nor is it a theological community, but it, the Advent Christian Church is an apocalyptic community. Keep that with you. Second is that we are free when we are free from Freedom requires relation to a thing which once had a restrictive or otherwise negative effect upon our discretions and now no longer. Third is this, that government's responsibility can either be to our freedom or to its features, but it cannot be to both. I'll rephrase that another way, that government's responsibility can either be to alleviate us of its burdens or to attend to the processes of its own preservation, but again, it cannot be to both. This is especially true of government with a budget. 
And when I first informed Kara that I was to give a July 4th sermon, she teased me to ask if I'd make use of the phrase, freedom in Christ. She knew I wouldn't. And at first I said I, and first I, said I wouldn't, but you know, I've, I've since decided to surprise her, and this is her surprise. This phrase, though it passes easily among us, is not present in the Scriptures. The closest to it is from Paul to the Galatians saying, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, and that's, that phrase is very awkward. The best we can get at Paul's definition of freedom is that it is an effect of our redemption contrasted with the law of Moses and misunderstood by some in the Galatian audience as a license to indulgence. A better qualifier for Paul's sort of freedom is that it is a responsible freedom, which brought us to us as an imperative has its difficulties. Those difficulties aside, please know if there is something about this phrase, freedom in Christ, which still preaches well on the occasion of July 4th, it must bear necessary distinction from the freedom intended by the founding fathers. For though the Declaration of Independence survives as a national, perhaps even sacred symbol, it must not be construed a religious symbol, as has nearly been the case. Because for those of us, for those who have not religion, there is government. And who have not the kingdom of God, there is the state. Thus, towards the processes of government, the highest energies of non-religion are thrown to the extent that by their power the righteous will rot for man his own salvation. At least that's what's believed. Here I will say candidly that the American moral imagination is arrested towards the fashion of a word progress. A word which, as was observed by Richard Weaver, is more useful than it is meaningful. With rhetorical force, according to, to Weaver, this word can validate any candidate and any course of action as progressive, which postures its critical objections as backwards or as treasonable to the public well-being. Progress and Christianity differ upon the terms of our existence, but that's a sermon for another day. Instead, it's upon a very base definition of progress, which is the course of history towards an idealized economic state that I will say Advent Christian things. As previously stated, the Advent Christian Church was and is not a moral movement, nor a theological movement, but an apocalyptic movement. And I don't merely mean eschatological or an end-time movement. I mean something much stronger than that. Its origins, those of the Advent Christian Church, are a proper extension to the New Testament church in tone, both urgent and disappointed. For much like Will Miller and his followers, the early church prepared for an imminent second advent of Christ, which was surely to occur in the lifetimes of the first witnesses. They waited until they saw their expectations fail, and they carried these expectations with them unto death. Over time, the church transformed into something more permanent. Leaders assumed the duties of administration. Language rules were made to create new in-groups and out-groups, the kingdom of God became less the collapse of the current order and more a trans-historical agency on the way to society's perfection. Eventually, the persuasive power of apocalypse literature and more broadly of Revelation was lost. The last book in your Bible, Revelation, was added only reluctantly. Over the years, to be treated dispassionately for historical inquiry or to retroject modern political crises as the object of its allegory, and both are incorrect. For the astute preacher guarding his church's reputation in a culture which esteems science and sociology to such an idolatrous degree, his attention to this book is cautious, maybe even strictly private. 
The content of the book certainly presents interpretive challenges beyond the circumstances of its composition, and the knowledge assumed by the author of his audience appears so specific that the culture gap, which already frustrates the labors of our New Testament study, is widened. On its face, the tone of revelation is dark and foreboding. The images are strange and chaotic, and that is exactly their lesson for us today. If you want, you can turn to Revelation chapter 12. We start with verse 1. And from Revelation 12, starting with verse 1, the revelator says this, A sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars, and she was pregnant. And she cried out, being in, labor and, and in, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven crowns, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, she might devour, he might devour her child. And then from verse 7, and there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they did not prevail, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old, who was called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. You can stop there. This imagery, which again is apocalyptic, is not unique in Revelation. You'll find it elsewhere in the Old Testament prophetic books, those of Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Apocalypse is a genre of literature whose common quality across Judaism and into Christianity is that there are first events of great upheaval and religious turmoil the effects of which so so catastrophic their evil can only be explained as cosmic. Apocalypse literature reminds us not only of religion's cosmology, but also its chronology, and by that I mean its statements about time. For in early Judaism, life within the created order was cyclical. Humanity moved in parallel to seasons with other natural processes. Holidays speak to this chronology. Out of the chronology, you get such verses as the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It rains on the righteous and the wicked both. The purpose of holidays is to give rhythm for what is believed to be an enduring and in the mind of the ancient Hebrew, timeless community. One to whom God promises sustainment in a manner not final, but eternal. That chronology was interrupted when Israel's chief national symbol, the temple, was destroyed. Israel's encounter was with enemies who set themselves in opposition to God, even laying siege to his dwelling place. And if God's justice was to return and remain in the world, it would first expunge evil and establish a kingdom that could not be brought down by our conquests, nor a king by its corruption. Time then became linear. The course of this worldly events believed headed towards its abrupt end. Religious activity became laden with this expectation of an abrupt end. What response apocalyptic asks of us is in effect the difficulty of its symbols, which are tyrannizing symbols. For our loyalty to these symbols as an authoritative body of metaphor makes us strange. 
My prayer for us is we are bold to appear strange even in the context of a faith culture that aspires to reason and aspires to appear reasonable. As it pertains to our occasion of communion, it was the appearance of a strange faith which pushed the early Christians into the Colosseum under the charge of cannibalism. The language of the body and blood of Christ having met with Roman perception, the latter describing this Christian covenant as pledged by its victim. Communion is clothed in the energies of Advent, that which proclaims the Lord's death until he comes again. Strange and peculiar to this is this expectation, or at least that's how it's supposed to be. For where activities of the world pause, the Christian expects, and where in human experience most excites and most disappoints, the Christian's participation is transfigured to a profound loneliness. To hear and see the activities of heaven disturbed, and to have no language to report its majesty, and no mind to receive it. What can be said of the apocalyptic mind on this day, the anniversary of a formal declaration of our independence, other than it is an interruption to the American consciousness? I believe the peculiar and the strange is very much the power, not the purpose of the church. For where we see the woman clothed in the sun and the great red dragon, as I described in chapter 12 of Revelation, we also see in the book the church, the bride of Revelation, dance about with the other symbols. That is because the church is a symbol. More than that, the church is the apocalypse. Her confession thrusts government into the process of dying, which in a society convinced the government's righteousness is hastily needed or else governments transition from first principles to the pursuits of light and transient causes, as forewarned to us by the authors of the Declaration, they will soon overcome us and will soon dispose us to suffer beneath the despotism of progress, which is willed to become absolute. This progress is a force more sinister than the devices of empire, having a strange religion, having clothed itself as society's salvation vehicle, and aspiring to wash us by its methods. Your flesh attends to this machine. Think of this next time you text somebody. The screen projects upon you. Its images demand of you. Indeed, to make an image of you for what it desires, and that is to pin you to the wall of its own cosmology and reinvent you as the modern Christian. No behavior speaks more plainly, more plainly to this effect than the assimilation of the language of progress which is a language of policy into the Christian lexicon. Policy is utility language, which makes any judgment of its subject a dialectically insecure position and compels the nation to endless debate. The apocalyptic mind is freedom, and I would say in this day, real freedom, and that's freedom from this debate culture. Because the apocalyptic mind squares our shoulders to the world and says, it has all been decided. The rule of man has failed, and the charm, the charm of his philosophy has shown only darkness. The apocalyptic mind, therefore, presents real freedom, but it also real dif- presents real difficulty, because as I've described, participation in its imagination makes us strange to the general course of religion. And to end the sermon... Fortunately for us, 
who are strange to the general course of religion. Uh, Paul actually speaks to this, this quality of being strange because he did have an apocalyptic mind. And in his correspondence to the Corinthians, which there's some mystery around the circumstances of that correspondence, he feels that he, feels that he has to defend his, his ministry and some of those, those strange, you know, the perception of being strange to his audience. And he says this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciousness. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you, have, you would have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For, for if we lose our minds, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for sin, and therefore all have died, and he died for all, so that they who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet we now know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone in Christ is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away, and behold, the new things have come. And that is the essence of an apocalyptic mind. That is an apocalyptic statement. The current world order has collapsed. And fortunately, I'm, I was very happy to hear you were doing communion today because there's no greater apocalyptic statement than participating in communion. So, saying all that, I'll close to say, as you go into communion, know what it means. Know it makes you strange to everyone outside these walls. And I want you to eat of the bread. I want you to drink of the cup. And I want you to speak with the force of revelation that the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, the authority of Christ, it has come. Amen.